Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Built in 1962, Dodger Stadium, located in the heart of Los Angeles, has been the beloved home of the Los Angeles Dodgers for over 54 years. The famous field is known for being one of the best places for pitchers to play baseball. It has seen 12 no-hitters and two perfect games, giving it an air of sports greatness. However, beyond its famed facade are stories of displacement and a tragic history among the land's inhabitants. The Dodger Stadium is in a place that holds more than just the sounds of fans cheering. There are persistent tales of spectral visitors passed down from the different generations of employees who work at the stadium. The story goes that long before the Dodger Stadium was built, a couple on their honeymoon was sitting on a hillside and enjoying a beautiful view of downtown LA. And the groom felt the need to relieve himself, so he strolled into the woods. But unfortunately, he would tragically fall over the ridge and plummet to his death. His wife searched for him, and apparently when she realized her husband's terrible fate, she would jump to her death to join him in the afterlife. It was said that every once in a while, someone who worked at the Dodger Stadium would see a ghostly figure of a woman dressed in white jumping off that very same cliff. But this isn't the only paranormal experience witnessed at the stadium. Many people attribute other ghostly visits to the stadium to the Mexican-American community that used to live there. The community that was displaced in order to make room for the Grand Stadium. Over 1,000 Mexican-American families had to leave the Chavez Ravine when Dodger Stadium was built in 1962. It was a painful part of local history that left scars for decades. Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop were the names of the three small close-knit towns that lived in the Chavez Ravine. And in these communities, families grew their own food, took care of their own animals, planned their own events, and many of them bought the land that they lived on. And people knew each other so well that most of them didn't lock their doors during the day. People who lived in the Chavez Ravine were self-sufficient. But the city saw the area as a great place to rebuild. Because most of the people there didn't have power or indoor plumbing. The Federal Housing Act of 1949 
gave money to the city of Los Angeles so that they could start making plans for huge public housing projects in the Chavez Ravine. But the only thing that were stopping them were the local residents. It was 1950 when the city of Los Angeles told the people in Chavez Ravine that they had to sell their land to the city under the eminent domain law. And in return, they would get fair compensation and be the first to live in the new homes being built as part of the Alition Park Heights public housing development. And I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Developers negotiated in a way that was unfair to the locals, giving the most money to those who sold their land right away and less to those who sold later. This tactic caused people in the area to panic that the longer they waited, the less money they would get for their land and the more chance of them missing out on the offerings and many people gave in to the city's plan and took the unfair payment because they thought that they could go back to the Chavez Ravine when the project was done. Private owners, on the other hand, had different plans for Chavez Ravine. Public support for public housing changed as the years went by. Walter O'Malley who owned most of the Brooklyn Dodgers, didn't like the plans for a new stadium in Brooklyn. People with money in Los Angeles were eager to get the city a big sports team. They thought that getting O'Malley to move the Dodgers to Los Angeles would be an incredible idea. And to make things even better, they said that O'Malley could build the stadium exactly how he wanted in the Chavez Ravine. They only had to get the backing from people in Los Angeles and get rid of the last few homeowners in the ravine. During the 1953 mayor election, Norris Paulson strongly opposed the building of the housing and used the Chavez Ravine issue to help his campaign. And after being elected, Paulson shelled the project leaving the people who lived there before with destroyed homes and broken vows. And the community of Chavez Ravine, which used to be thriving, became a ghost town. People who refused to sell their land to the city were the only ones still living in Chavez Ravine at the time. And on the day formerly known as Black Friday, and not the day after Thanksgiving, deputies from the LA County Sheriff's Department arrived with flashing lights to evacuate the remaining families. And as the families were forcibly removed by sheriff deputies and their residual belongings were removed by movers, bulldozers stood by. A few minutes later, their houses were torn down a live broadcast unveiling the new crown jewel of America's favorite game was viewed by people throughout the country as families in Chavez Ravine 
were forcibly removed from their homes. The elderly, children, and women were taken away in squad cars because they were seen as squatters on their own land. Aside from a few personal items, everything was left behind. Some of the residents even came back after the sheriffs and the wrecking teams left to try to find what they could of their belongings and the rubble. Given the area's long history, it's not surprising that workers have passed on scary stories from previous generations of stadium workers. A book called Haunted Baseball, written by Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, claims that a former worker at Dodger Stadium was working on an inventory at his stand one evening. He worked late into the night on a job that he had only had to do twice a month. It was just after midnight that the stadium lights were set to turn off automatically. And it was at this time that the worker was only able to rely on the lighting provided by his stand. The worker would take a break at 1 a.m. to sit down in the stands and look out into the dark field. And that's when he would see something that looked like fog moving across the field from the Dodgers' dugout. Looking closer, he could see what appeared to be a figure. And the figure would look like it was hovering before quickly going away. The worker also said that he's seen the figure many times during his 20 years of working at the stadium. One time he even pointed a laser pen at the ghostly figure and it didn't go away when the light hit it. The worker was interested and asked a longtime Dodgers groundskeeper if the field had a watering system that could make such an illusion. And the man replied that it did not. One security guard said that guards often disliked being left alone on the loja level of the stadium because they would often feel cold winds and the feeling of people tapping their shoulders. One shipping and receiving clerk even said that the warehouse for goods under the stadium can feel creepy because he has heard things and the light would turn off and on in the warehouse for no reason. The same worker mentioned earlier, who would often see the spectral figure in the field at night, recalled taking a break from an inventory count. He was walking from the left field slash third base kiosk to the elevator through an almost completely dark aisle when he heard what sounded like a small kid running behind him barefoot. He turned around but didn't see anything and he thought it might have been a toddler who got split from their parents during the game. But of course that would be insane for some parents to leave a toddler behind without it being a huge commotion. There was no sign of anything when he turned around. He even looked behind some pillars to see if someone was joking with him or if there was an animal like a possum or raccoon, which were pretty common in the area. But he saw nothing. 
The worker would keep going and keep hearing these steps behind him. But every time he turned around, no one was there. As soon as his arm hair started to stand up, the elevator door opened for him without having to push a button. And when the worker called security to see if anyone else was at the stadium, he was told that no one else was there. Many people who work at the stadium, especially security guards who work late at night, often say they hear footsteps that don't exist. According to Paul Rowland's book, Hauntings, one security officer told a scary story about how he and other officers often hear a lady walking in high heels on the top deck. Aside from the security guard, the only other person who would usually be at the stadium was someone who was working on payroll. It was almost like a ghost town at the stadium. If it wasn't the honeymooners who died ages ago while enjoying the sights of Los Angeles atop a hill, or the displaced residents of the Chavez Ravine, the area where the parking lot for the Dodger Stadium now sits atop of was once home to a Jewish cemetery. In 1855, the newly formed Hebrew Benevolent Society asked the city to give them land that could be used as a graveyard. The Los Angeles County Book of Deeds would offer the society the land on April 9th in exchange for a dollar. And over 360 people were laid to rest there between 1858 when the first burial took place in 1902 when the cemetery was closed. In 1902, the society sent a petition to the city saying that the old cemetery site should be closed since the city was growing, the population rising, and the oil industry expanding on the land next to the cemetery site. It was almost impossible for the families of those buried to get to the graveyard because of the oil wells, derricks, tanks, and brickyards and kilns all around it. And the smoke from these sources had even bleached the plants and statues so badly that they ruined the entire aesthetic of the graveyard. And there were more and more churches and cemeteries built in Los Angeles as the Jewish population grew. And after the graves of the old cemetery were taken out, the society gave most of the land to the city of Los Angeles. And in the 1960s, the Jewish Federation Council of Los Angeles put in an application to put a memorial stone near the spot of the old cemetery. So if you're ever in the Dodgers parking lot, you may come across it. Now that we've covered what's above the ground, let's get into what's been rumored to lurk underneath the stadium's surface. The Los Angeles Times had a cover story on a mining expert named G. Warren Schaffelt 
on January 29, 1934. It was said that he created a radio x-ray that showed a network of tunnels underneath downtown Los Angeles. According to Sheffelt, he was taken to a Hopi Indian, identified as Little Chief Greenleaf, who would tell him about the lizard people. Greenleaf said that they had built 13 underground settlements along the Pacific coast, including three underground cities to protect the group from future disasters. There were grocery stores and dwellings for a thousand families in each of these underground towns. The story said that the group carved out the tunnels and rooms of their underground homes using a chemical solution that melted solid bedrock. And at the same time, 5,000 years ago, the American Southwest had been hit by a massive blaze and a very catastrophic meteor shower. These lizard people were very advanced and smarter than modern humans. They saw the snake as a sign of long life. And inside the ground, they built cities that looked like lizards. The lizard's head was directly under Dodger Stadium, and its tail was under the Central Library in downtown Los Angeles. And the tunnels even went all the way to the ocean. Sheffelt was intrigued because the race liked gold. The talk of treasure rooms was too tempting to pass up. They were told that the lizard people kept their most important information on 37 gold tablets that were kept in a room called the Key Room. The Los Angeles County agreed to the dig as long as they got 50% of any fortune that was found. She felt moved into the Banning home at 518 North Hill Street and dug a 350-foot hole straight down to find what he called a treasure room below. But although Shufelt allegedly discovered the room through his x-ray device, and spent a lot of time planning and drawing out the treasure-filled underground city, he never found it. At the precise moment he made his way through one of the treasure rooms, water began to pour down the shaft. Because of the risk of a cave-in, no further exploration was done, and the hole was sealed up. The project which had been approved by the city council more than a year before this incident, stopped all of a sudden, and Shufelt and his friends were never seen or heard from again. And everything was chalked up to it all being a hoax and disregarded because of its mysterious and very unlikely nature. And after that, Mysterious tunnels began turning up in the heart of Los Angeles, but they were always attributed to the 19th century smuggling of Chinese laborers, 
But Shufelt wasn't the only person in modern-day California who thought Los Angeles was built on top of an old city. Let's have a look at Miss Edith Eldon Robinson's vision at the end of this peculiar little story, which was published in the prestigious journal of the American Society for Psychic Research. It was five weeks before Schufelt's excavations were written about in the Times. On the evening of December 22, 1933, the psychic, Miss Robinson, saw a vast city and mammoth tunnels extending to the seashore under Los Angeles. She said the tunnels were built by a race that no longer exists keep themselves safe and give them passage to the sea. Since then, this area was dug into multiple times. Once to build the Broadway Tunnel and again to build the 101 Freeway. But never was any gold found. They might not have dug deep enough yet. These tunnels make people wonder what else is hidden underneath the city of Los Angeles and if there really was a society from long ago that was very advanced. Even though there is no proof of the lizard people or their gold tablets existing, stories about lost riches and underground tunnels continue to captivate us. And also, what happened to Shuvelt? He either found something or gave up. Was it a chance that the city of Los Angeles agreed to his plan and then started digging up the whole area for public work projects over the next few years and maybe found something without disclosing it? Another crazy case I read about involving Dodger Stadium is something I always feared. It's almost like something out of a thousand ways to die. And this actually happened to someone. Just five years ago, on August 25th, 2018, disaster struck Dodger Stadium during a game that seemed like a typical game. To celebrate her 79th birthday and her and her husband Irwin's 59th birthday, wedding anniversary. Linda Goldblum went to a Dodgers game against the San Diego Padres on a Saturday night. It was the top of the ninth inning and Linda was sitting in the third row of the loge section, which I had previously said that security guards avoided at night. The Dodgers were ahead 3-2 and starter Kinley Jansen was up against friend Mill Reyes of the Padres. Kenley Jensen would throw a 93 miles per hour heater. And when Reyes made a go for the pitch, he cut it almost straight back into the stands. The ball went just over the safety net behind the home plate and hit Goldblum in the head severely. Goldblum would slouch in her seat right away and ushers would come down and ask if she was okay and of course she would say no 
The next thing you know, an EMT would come and rush her to the hospital where she would throw up in the ambulance. Linda Goldblum would have surgery on her brain and she would die two days later as a result of her injury. People were upset with how the Dodgers handled Linda's death because they didn't say anything about it in public for almost six months. The family didn't say anything until Jana Brody, Linda's daughter, called ESPN. The public and the media didn't know much about the tragedy. The Dodgers said that they made their choice because they were worried about privacy. Erwin Goldblum was angry that the Dodgers weren't being honest about what happened. He thought that they should have told the public about it. And the family tried to sue the Dodgers, but a baseball rule said that teams weren't responsible for accidents caused by foul balls. Although a private settlement was eventually reached. But the family's new goal was to raise awareness about fan safety. Goldblum's death is the first directly linked to a foul ball in almost 50 years. But hundreds of fans are hit every season and many are badly hurt. Most fans who are hurt also can't get any compensation because of the aforementioned law, president, that critics like Goldblum's family say needs to be looked over again. Jane Brody became a supporter of making baseball parks protective nets longer and taller. And even though progress was slow, the Dodgers raised the nets a year after Linda's death, and other teams in the league followed suit. Now that's all I have for the dark side of the Dodgers stadium. As the crowd cheers and ghosts whisper, the Dodgers stadium is no longer just a place for sports fans to go. It's also a place where the lines between the living and the dead are fuzzy, blending the past and the present in a strange and frightening way. Make sure you rate and review this podcast and also share this podcast on social media, especially if your friends are Dodgers fans. I think they would truly enjoy this episode and also to know what was there before the grand stadium was built. Follow me at the Scarecast on Instagram and TikTok and on YouTube to stay up to date on my content. And as always, be safe out there. And until next time.